We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathering to record this episode. We recognise the ongoing contributions that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are making to the sciences. You are listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast that brings you accessible, accurate and engaging STEM, science, technology, engineering and maths content from Tasmania. The show is supported and recorded by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information. My name is Neve Chapman and I'm joined by my co-host Kelsey Pickard and our special guest Leva Pertle. Hi. Hi. So we're going to be talking to you about your work as operations manager for Australian seafood industries. So can you tell us a little bit about what they do as an organisation and what you do? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I'm the operations manager for a company called Australian Seafood Industries. Um, It's a small company that manages a selective breeding program for Pacific oysters uh, nationally. We're a small company, so we we build our strength through our collaborators such as IMAS and CSIRO. And uh, yeah, so we've been running a selective breeding program for oysters for um, over 20 years now. So essentially um, what ASI does is we produce a number of family lines, like 80 family lines um, every year, and we can trace the parentage back, the grandparents all the way back several generations. Um, so we look at, we, we, we test these animals, we put them in the, in the field, see how they go with disease, and so then we, we're able to isolate what are the best performing families then what we do is we take those families, we give it to all the hatcheries because we're industry-owned, so whatever we research, they, get, they directly get benefit from. Um, and they produce that en masse. So they'll, they'll amplify that and then um, they'll actually do further breeding and then they'll give the, once they're you know, grown up from that larvae stage to the selling stage, they will then hand that over to the farmers. And the farmers' roles is they basically just grow them up kind of like a nursery plant seed bank mm-hmm. and, and the farmer actually farming the crop. Um, so we're right at the beginning of that supply chain. Um, so it's very important that, um, yeah, people or industry know exactly uh, where the stock's coming from and what our process is. So selective breeding programs, do you do that more so for food production or do you do that for research purposes? So the selective breeding program is both used for food production and research. So they pretty much marry one-to-one. Um, so the selective breeding program initially looked at marketable traits, um, such as meat condition and shell shape, um, basically to make a consistent product for industry. And um, so essentially that um, flows on into industry and, and makes them more profitable because they're able to sell more oysters at a higher quality that's pretty cool. So if you're looking at selective breeding, you're trying to make the best, most viable oyster for sales. Correct. So can you tell us a little bit about the biology of an oyster? Sure. Um, so essentially how oysters are made is that they're found in, in the water. Um, uh, they attach to substrates. Uh, when they get sexually mature, they will release their gonads so you have a male or a female oyster. 
sometimes they're hermaphrodites, so they change depending on temperature. It's quite unique. Um, but um, the, the males basically um, release their sperm in the water column, same with the females. And so they sort of meet in the middle and um, create um, an, an embryo, which then turns to larvae. So there's different stages of that. Um, and so they've got a little, like a little tail and um, swimming through the water column, eating little bits of algae. And as they grow up, they start um, developing what we call a foot. And they, they essentially use this foot to attach to a substrate. And then the cycle keeps going on and on. Um, but that's kind of in the natural environment. In farming, it's a little bit different. Um, so you'll, f you'll find oysters that grow in baskets. They don't attach to anything because we use a, a treatment um, of epinephrine. And uh, basically that adrenaline um, causes them to withdraw the foot in. And that's why you have standalone oysters um, for sale. Wow, that is so cool. <laughs> so how long, when they're swimming through the water column not attached to anything, how long is that phase before you get it to start attaching, do you know? Yeah, um, it depends, um, uh, but generally you're looking about 19 days. Okay. Um, we see that in the hatchery. Um, so uh, in terms of cultivating it in, in a hatchery, um, we will do a technique called strip spawning, which basically we open up the oysters and we will kind of... <laughs> sounds pretty pretty horrible just shaving off the gonad um <laughs> but it's that's a common technique that you find around the world and so we put that in a beaker and so we do all the males strip them first and then strip the the females and then um we will do um we'll cross them in buckets and later on they're put in tanks and grown up so from from that point on um to to when they start having the little feet and you can actually see that they look like oysters is around that 19 day period that's yeah. cool so you're selecting for the best performing male and the best best performing female and you take the sex cells from each of them and then breed them in a beaker um, and then you're then selecting for the best offspring again how does the process of selection work yeah that's a very good question so um essentially um uh so we don't um, combine them in the beaker. We just strip them and put them in the beaker, but we put them together in the in the, the bucket and the tank. But um, essentially um, how we choose those selection is we use a, a family selection process. Um, it's like a, a genetic term, which basically goes to say that um, you are following a, a line of pedigree and you've got these estimated breeding values, which bas basically show you which... Uh, families perform well against certain traits. So whether that is meat condition, um, most recently that's been disease resistance. Um, and so based on those values, we say, okay, well, these two families are working well together and then we'll actually combine them. Also bearing in mind that we don't want to have a high inbreeding value as well. So we kind of control for that as well because we want to keep um, it as genetically diverse as possible. So can you see that, you know, with inbreeding or without maintaining that diversity in where you're drawing all of your um, genetic information from, so using a variety of males and females, do you see that that can decrease the resistance to disease or can re re result in um, deformities or reduce quality? Yeah, well, not particularly disease resistance, but quality definitely. So you'll see um, deformities, um, and you'll see other health issues that occur from that. So we, we definitely want to um, keep that in check whilst we, we 
create something that performs well. So what kind of things do you look for for like good oyster meat? Like is it just size or is there also consistency and texture or colour? Yeah, um, so uh, meat condition basically means the glycogen levels within the meat. So um, so it's, it, it, some people call it like the creamy factor. Um, <laughs> again, not a scientific term, but essentially um, it, it, you've got a, light, uh, a fair bit of fat storage in there. Um, and so that's kind of what people find quite popular and what sells well with the farmers. So are you a avid fan of oysters? Do you actually enjoy eating oysters or like how did you find yourself in the field of working with oysters? Um, oh, avid fan, that's that's an interesting uh, <laughs> <laughs> label. Um, <laughs> I would say before I started working with ASI, it was um, I definitely didn't uh, eat oysters all the time. It wasn't one something that I'd go out of the way to, to eat. Um, however... Uh, one day I was on the farm and was working with a farmer and it was the first time that I ate it right out, um, uh, naturally, right out of the basket. And I thought to myself, oh gosh, I, I can't insult this poor farmer. I've just got to eat it. <laughs> and this was in South Australia. And, and I remember he gave it to me um, and, and I sort of ate it in front of him. And no one warned me that in South Australia, the water is very, very salty compared to Tasmania. And I ate it and it was just like the this salty meat just going down my throat. And I was like, oh, my God. Um, so it was this interesting experience. So I had my, my first time experience eating it natural was just a bit of a disaster. But then <laughs> after that, um, I did, um, you know, have a few down here and I was realised, oh, I think I prefer Tassie oysters. Yeah. They're all good, but, you know, I'm biased because I'm from here. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And then, so what did you study as an undergraduate? To, did you do, like, zoology or um, general sciences before going into marine sciences? Um, so I actually studied, uh, first studied um, uh, marine, uh, sorry, medical research. Um, and I actually wanted to go down the path of neuroscience um, and then what happened was um, I was in a lecture one time and you know how you've got all those electives first year of, of science and I sat into this, this lecture and there was this um, grey-haired professor, Gustav Hallegraaf, he's just a character, he's great and he was just talking about this story about you know, algae and human evolution and how algae created our atmosphere and how they replicate every day. And I was like, this is cool. And I was never, I was never so intrigued in my life to, to, so enamoured by um, the story of algae and the story of our evolutionary uh, process. And so I was like, well, this is what I want to do. I'm here in Tasmania. Um, it's like a marine hub and fell in love with it and so I just move over to marine science and never regretted it. That's awesome. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. My name is Neve Chapman. I'm joined in studio with Kelsey Pickard and Leva Pertle. We're talking about oysters and the Australian seafood industries company and the research that they do. And in just a moment, we're going to be talking about a devastating disease or syndrome that affected the oyster industry and the clever solution that they came up with.
You are listening to That's What I Call Science. My name's Neve Chapman. I'm joined with Kelsey Pickard and Leva Pertel. We're talking about oysters and the Tasmanian oyster industry, as Leva is the operations manager for Australian Seafood Industries. So recently, the oyster industry was hit by a disease called Pacific Oyster Mortality Syndrome, or POMS. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, so the Pacific Oyster Mortality Syndrome... Uh, or POMS as it's known for, is um, a disease that uh, essentially affects the, the meat of the oysters. It, it's a virus that attacks it um, and uh, hijacks its machinery to produce more virus than that goes on to affect other um, uh, oysters. Uh, it's, it's not harmful for humans at all, but it just kills the meat, so there's no point in selling empty shells. Um, so that's uh, the Pacific Oyster Mortality Syndrome. So as I was mentioning before, um, ASI was actually uh, started in 2000 and they first started looking at these marketable traits, right? The meat condition and shell shape. But what happened in early 2000, this disease came, um, showed up in France out of nowhere um, and decimated the industry and it took them 10 years to recover. Wow. And so... The Pacific oyster industry in Australia was a little bit on high alert um, and they, they thought, okay, it's just in France. But then it travelled all the way to New Zealand and it took their industry five years to recover. So we're, we're starting to get a little bit scared now. And then the last, um, the cherry on top of the cake in 2010, this disease showed up in the Hawkesbury River in New South Wales. Um, Localised there, didn't go anywhere else but it shut down all the Pacific oyster farms there. And so that's when <laughs> the industry was a little bit, um, you know, getting a little bit frantic about it and, and scared about it. But they were really forward thinking and they thought, well, ASI is already set up as a breeding program for these other traits. Why not complement that with the disease resistance? So um, since that point, we started going down that path and we had this five-year plan to get it all done, and we had this um, goal that uh, we would we would actually achieve seventy percent resistance in our twelfth twelve month old stock. So halfway during that time, in January two thousand sixteen, this whole wave um, of unprecedented virus came to Tasmania, um, and that essentially um, pretty much decim nearly decimated. Um, the Tasmanian oyster industry. We were expecting it to happen, but not that early on, right? So I remember going out onto one of the biggest um, suppliers in Australia, going out to the lease on their boat and seeing millions and millions of dead oysters. Wow. Can you imagine the smell? Mm. It was horrendous. And it was very emotional for some of the farmers, being third-generation farmers, seeing all their stock just die overnight. Now, the crazy thing with POMS is that once it comes, it's here to stay. It lays dormant in the water column, but when it gets above 21 degrees, it gets active. So we were like, <laughs> the, only, the only solution to combat this is selective breeding nothing like vaccines or anything like there was a whole raft of uh, different ideas it's not going to help so what happened is um, seed sales went down and we're funded by a royalty 
um, so or levy system. Um, so that started drying up because people weren't buying the ASI seed. Um, and essentially, uh, we were put in a, a, a precarious situation where we had to go and get some funding. Um, so we got some funding from FRDC and then later CRCP. And then we ended up project managing for the past three years, uh, four years, no, three years, sorry, um, this nationwide oyster recovery project, not only for Pacific oysters, um, there was also little side projects through other universities on, you know, um, Angazis, which are native flat oysters, as well as, as Sydney rocks. But what ASI was doing was one of the, the, the core pieces and what we wanted to do was change and pivot a little bit our, our five-year plan. You know how it said we wanted 70% resistance in 12-month stock? Well, guess what? None of this bigger stock was available for farmers. So they needed something that had high resistance in smaller stock. So what we did is we said this, now what we're going to concentrate on is 70% resistance in two to three month old oysters. So having said that, it took t uh, France 10 years to recover, New Zealand five years to recover, and through the work that we did, it took between 18 months and three years to recover. So do you think the reason Tasmania was able to recover so quickly was because you already had this breeding program started before the... Uh, disease hit Tasmania? Absolutely, 100% correct. Um, you know, and, and it, I have to emphasise, it wasn't just ASI. Um, you know, we were partnering with a lot of people, a lot of different partners, a lot of industry members, um, and and s some of the, the bigger players in, in our specific sub-project was with CSIRO and IMAS. Um, so CSIRO has been providing genetic services, um, uh, this for um, analysing some of the data and sort of helping us along that path. And um, so we've been working with them for a number of years. Uh, so And then also industry's input. We have a um, what we call an industry technical reference group. So we have people from research bodies, um, from industry as well, that help inform our breeding decisions um, and everything. So it was an absolutely a research slash industry effort it was a good example of community coming together and and coming up with solutions so yes Australia was definitely forward-thinking had already planned for it and because we put um, you know the goals first and work together we were able to do this very quickly so I was just wondering you mentioned there that you changed tack from looking at 70% reduction in older oysters to younger oysters so obviously um, virus susceptibility from a human perspective changes quite a lot over the age spectrum, but actually young people typically have a more responsive immune system because our adaptive immunity is constantly changing because we're just being bombarded by new things all the time. Mm. Um, is that the case in oysters? You said that the, it differs slightly their ability to respond to a virus. Yeah. What we've known from the research and a lot of, um, like in Ifremain in, in France, they do a lot of uh, research on, you know, different mortality rates between age um, and size classes. Um, we don't know the underlying mechanisms for why, but we just know between certain um, size and age ranges, they're much more susceptible for the disease mm. compared to something that's larger and older. Whether it is, you know, some sort of... Um, be to do with maturity of the, the immune system or metabolism or whatever, um, we don't know. Yeah, that's really interesting. 
So you mentioned earlier that the virus uh, was first noticed in France and then it travelled to New Zealand and then to Australia. So how did the virus travel? I know that (laughs) (laughs) you mentioned the foot of the oyster before. They're not necessarily swimming around. So how did the virus travel? That's a that's a the million dollar question, isn't it? Um, I suppose there's conspiracy theories around it and stuff, but I don't think, uh, like scientifically, we can really say what that is. Um, you know, some some people say it could be ballast water in the ship. So, like I said, as a larvae stage, they're little swimmers; they're not attached to anything. So, if you're sucked up in the ballast water, released somewhere else, that could be a possibility. Not saying that that's um, the answer. Um, I think that's the most likely. Um, explanation I, I would th- would have thought. So you also said that it can stay dormant for a really long time in the water column. Is the water that they're exposed to like fairly stagnant, like it's not moving around heaps. So therefore that virus isn't going to move much from that water and also it's just going to stay within that colony for a really long time. Yeah, it really depends on um, what, what area, growing area it is. So you've got different lagoons into tidal tidal um, uh, situations. Um, so you've got areas where, say, it's sort of um, further in in a lagoon sort of area where you don't have much um, turnover in terms of water. Um, so you, you'll, you'll see a difference between that uh, versus something that's close to a mouth of a you know, river or something like that, and you see a high flush rate. Um, but across everything, generally, it's quite patchy. Um, so it's again, there needs to be a lot of more research on maybe vector mo- modeling, um, you know, um, ocean oceanography side of things. Um, so we mentioned earlier, it's the Pacific Oyster Mortality Syndrome. So bias syndrome is that a an external um, virus, bacteria, cell that is then taken in by healthy oysters and then passed on through their um, gonads or is it something that genetically modifies them first and that it's introduced by a weaker strain of an oyster itself and then it it prolifically goes through the colony yes uh very good question so i'm not a virologist so i can't go into like the nitty-gritty details but um what i know is that uh, from the research that i've read at um some people at um university of technology sydney um they have looked at how the virus floats in the water and um, essentially it, they say it attaches to particles and then um, when it's when it say particles like algae and then so the oyster will then engulf that algae as food um, and then so the virus itself um, will then uh, you know as as per receptor will sort of um, attach to the cells um, and hijack the uh, the cell function, DNA function, and just start replicating its own DNA, just like a just a general virus that you find. Um, and then what happens is that that oyster, once that becomes affected, will then um, spew out more of these viruses, and we'll we'll see across the lease that it's quite patchy. So mm-hmm. you know, I don't know if you've been to a farm recently, but they have these um, sort of um, they've got a system of racks and they're sort of like two two lines where they put baskets over and so there's um, rows in between where they can, you know, get boats in there and stuff so there's spaces between them and we'll find with some of our um, experiments that we put out there that you'll find some patchiness in one corner and less on the other if that's got to do with the hydrodynamics of the bay. 
most likely could be again that's um, to be a research further but essentially yeah it just once it gets infected into one animal then it kind of just makes more more of it spreads awesome that's fascinating so does POMS still pose a problem to the Tasmanian or world oyster industry? POMS doesn't um, pose a direct threat anymore because of the work that ASI has done um, in the sense that we're up to a point where we're finding high resistance in our families. So regardless, POMS is here to stay, but our fa- families are surviving much more. And the farmers have actually given us a great feedback. They've said there's been hardly any mortality in their stock from ASI, which is fantastic. It's, um, it's great to hear that the work that um, Australian Seafood Industries, ASI, have done it has been so successful and it's great that that work has been recognised. But it sounds like a really big part of that has been being industry-focused, being consumer-driven and having to find solutions and collaborating. So can you speak a little bit about the importance of really operating in that fashion and the benefit maybe that you've gained from that and, and your experience of that firsthand? Absolutely. Um, I think it's very vital, especially in a situation where it's quite uncertain. Um, I think we can all relate to that right now. Um, and and the only uh, way forward is really to bring everyone's collective thoughts together and work on, on these solutions. And I think each um, part of um, the industry has something valid to offer. Um, and, and this can apply to any industry around the world. Um, so it's important to listen to the people on the ground who are actually farming the stuff. And it's really important to listen to what the researchers have to say and connect those two. Because sometimes ASI can be a bit of a knowledge broker between the two. Um, and, it, and it's one of those um, rare examples where um, research directly goes into commercialisation Um, which is really important. So I think, um, you know, the more that we can do that, uh, the more better results that we can see that actually different perspectives um, will give us more clarity on how to find better solutions for challenging um, times. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I think, you know, we really need to find more innovative solutions and more companies that can sit between the coalface of people working on the ground in industry to those that are knowledge finding or driving research and really connecting what's happening in the research right through to the coalface. So it's an excellent example to see something like that so local. So that's all we've got time for today, folks. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science and I hope you've enjoyed the show. My name is Neve Chapman. I've been joined by our expert guest, Leather Pertle and Kelsey Pickard. Thanks, Kelsey, for all your prep on the show. Thanks, Leather, for all of your expertise. It's been a really, really fascinating episode. Thank you for having me. And if you want to get in touch with us, please do on social media. You can find us by searching That's What I Call Science or That's Science Taz on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter or wherever you get your podcast. Please do subscribe and review us if you are listening to us on a podcast streaming service as that really increases our chance of growing our audience and, you know, who doesn't want to spread the good word of science. We'd also like to thank Edge Radio, who are our proud um, hosts. They let us record in their studio and they do great community radio things. So go to edgeradio.org.au for more information on all of their good things. I'd like to thank the team behind the scenes, which is Meredith Castles in post-production and Olivia Holloway in media. That's all for today. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.